when Lori Newell, who uh, uh, asked me to come and speak, um, told me that it was sold out, I concluded that what was going on here was all my former classmates came to see the amazing feat of me standing up and talking with a suit and tie on. Uh, but I see that's not quite the case. There's some, some old friends here, but there's a lot of other people here who I, who I haven't met. Um, and uh, I want to thank you very much for coming. And uh, what I think I'm going to do is try and be relatively brief, but give you my view on how uh, we see uh, the U.S. Uh, economy. I could certainly talk about the global economy. I spent a lot of my day working on that as well. But I think I'll focus on the U.S. economy and try to give you a sense of how I put together uh, a view, what are the building blocks, what are the issues that we think are, are most central to understanding where we're heading. And I'll try and be brief enough so that we could at least potentially have some opportunity for some questions and comments if, uh, if people want to do that. Uh, let me just start by saying something I said, I've been saying quite often, which is when you talk about the economy, uh, most people really just want a very simple, is it going to be good or bad over the next, uh, you know, whatever period, quarters, year, whatever. Uh, and I tend to, when, when that kind of thought comes into my mind, I tend to come back to um, a short story that uh, it relates to Boris Yeltsin, actually. Uh, president of Russia in the early 90s, who got off a plane once and was asked what he thought the uh, situation was in the Russian economy. And he answered that very uh, directly, said, good. Uh, and then the reporters who were there asked him to, if he could please elaborate, and he said, not good. <laughs> so I want to kind of basically organize my thoughts around three basic points. One is not good, the other is good, and the third is what I'll call the $10 trillion question, or challenge perhaps. So let's start with the not good. Um, I think everybody in this room has uh, known that we've gone through an event here which has been quite traumatic, uh, a financial crisis of size and breadth that we haven't seen uh, in the U.S. or the global economy since the Great Depression, a recession which is not by any means of the uh, size and magnitude of what went ha what happened in the 1930s, but it was pretty darn severe. And uh, you know, we can see that in many different uh, components of, of performance. We can see it in many different components of most people's uh, personal lives. And I think the simple point of not good here is when you have that kind of damaging event, you just do not heal very quickly. There's no uh, easy solution. There's no pill you can pop and, and turn the economy back to where it was. Uh, we have. Uh, 7 million less people employed in the United States than we did in the uh, middle of 2007. Uh, we have housing prices which are over 30% lower on a national average from where they were then. Uh, we have a financial system which is not functioning uh, anywhere nearly as, as well. Perhaps that's a good thing given everything that's happened. Uh, and we are, you know, we're sitting here kind of going through an event that is going to take an awful long time and it is painful it is slow, it is uneven, uh, and it's not fair in many, in many respects. And I think, you know, that's something we should all, in some ways, understand as a basic principle of where we stand. Uh, the problem I have when I talk to people is that understanding is, I think, very well uh, established, but people tend to extrapolate that to the entire economic landscape. And what I want to say in terms of the good and this is probably where I spend most of my time 
debating and discussing with people is that at the same time that we are painfully slowly healing and not coming back quickly to where we were, we are also growing at a pretty rapid pace. It may sound very odd to think about this idea of painful, slow healing and rapid growth in the same um, you know, breath, but actually it's quite natural. And the reasons why it's natural, I think, really relate to two things. Um, one is when you go through a traumatic event like a, a recession or a crisis, behavior gets extremely defensive. And again, I think that's something most of us can, can feel in our, our, our personal lives. And once you get behavior to be as defensive as it got in 2009, and it got really defensive, companies did things um, that you know really reflected a, a belief they may not survive over the coming um, months and quarters. Households, and I think in many respects, did similar things. The capacity to grow from that point, to change back away from a defensive stance, provides an enormous amount of fuel for growth. Um, similarly, when you get to that kind of point, policymakers do very extreme things, and they do things that are extremely committed to getting growth. And we are seeing that with unprecedented actions from the Fed, unprecedented actions taking place on the fiscal side as well. And we've seen that in results. Since the recession ended, we've been growing uh, close to 3%. That's actually faster on average than we grew uh, over the course of the last expansion phase that began. Um, in 2000 and, uh, late 2001. Growth is important. It's important in the sense of it generates income, it generates jobs, it generates uh, wealth, and we're seeing these things happen from an extremely low base. Now what I want to talk about a little bit here is what is the next few quarters going to deliver? And that's, and quite frankly, that's probably the most important thing I can, I can do in terms of adding a service, because I think economists are in some ways capable of seeing the near-term dynamic. I think we're very weak at trying to project out the um, you know, more medium term where we're going to be two, three, four years. I'll, I'm going to do that later, but that's, uh, that's partly uh, because I can't resist. Um, so I think what the next two or three quarters are going to deliver for us is actually probably the, the best economic growth we're going to see in this cycle. Uh, we think we're going to grow at about a 4% pace in the United States. Um, I come back to the, the principles I, I kind of laid out before. I think we're at a point now where not only is behavior very defensive, but companies and households have started to see enough improvement here that they're beginning to change in a more rapid way towards normalizing. It's happening by far much more aggressively on the company space where there's enormous gains and profits over the last couple of years, where business confidence in latest readings is coming up to levels that in many measures we haven't seen since the late 1990s. Um, and we're seeing it in the data. We're seeing it in some of the uh, spending numbers and capital equipment. We're seeing it in inventory behavior. Uh, and if we're right, we're going to start to see it tomorrow in terms of jobs. We're looking for a 200,000 gain in um, non-farm payrolls tomorrow. I'm sure everybody gets up at, at 8.25 to see that number. Um, <laughs> should actually get up at 825 to see the jobless claims number on Thursday, but I'm, gonna, I'm digressing there. Um, so, you know, we think the corporate sector is really a big engine here. We think that engine is being complemented by a global economy which has an increasingly large base of strong emerging markets who today make up roughly 40% of the globe, 10 years ago made up 30% of the globe, 15 years ago uh, made up only 
uh, about 25% of the globe. Their, their expansion and, and role in the world is much, much greater today than it was. So you're getting that, and you're getting it in a context of a consumer that is, I think, still very defensive, um, having raised its savings rate, though, substantially, having taken levels of spending, particularly housing spending, down to, to what are record low levels in, in U.S. modern history. In modern history, I mean, go, means going back as a share of GDP to somewhere like the 1920s. Um, you know, there is an opportunity for consumers to build off the gains they're seeing in wealth, the gains they're seeing in labor income, and actually, from a very depressed position, be somewhat surprised and increase spending as well. It's that combination with the global stuff that we think is coming together in a very nice way as we go through uh, 2011. And as I said, I think the numbers we're going to see on growth are going to be somewhere close to 4%, which if it's realized for a few quarters will be as good as we've done really since the uh, late 1990s. Uh, are there risks? Yeah, there's, there's plenty of risks. And unfortunately, um, I spent my time at Binghamton uh, studying economics to avoid thinking about politics, but as an economist, unfortunately, I found that you can't avoid that. And we're dealing with uh, a number of uh, geopolitical risk factors. Uh, the one I'm sure everyone here is aware of is the um, events in Middle East, North Africa, uh, which have pushed up oil prices uh, significantly enough to have some impact on, on U.S. performance here. Oil prices are up 20% from where they averaged in the fourth quarter of last year. It's going to definitely take some steam out of the economy. Uh, I would emphasize with the images we have of the 1970s, even of the uh, Gulf War in 1990, as events where oil did enormous damage to the U.S. economy, I'd emphasize there are really three things that drive oil when it hurts the U.S. in a big way. One is oil spikes, which means it can move up somewhere like 70 to 100% over the space of three or four months, and that has happened four or five times in our modern history. That's not what's happened now. Uh, oil drives interest rates a lot higher, and we can see that's not what's happening now as well. And the other one is that oil creates a major uh, impact on supply, which affects confidence both on the business and the household side. And that's not what's happening now. So without trying to project the future in geopolitics, what I'd say is so far what we've had is a, a very modest drag on growth from this event. But one, of course, which uh, we have to you know, watch very carefully. And again, I'm not going to try and give you a sense that I have any clue how uh, the politics are playing out. I do want to just mention in passing there are two other very important developments playing out on the geopolitical side, one being the European sovereign debt crisis, which we believe is moving towards uh, a solution of some sort that will limit the stresses over the course of the next year or two. But the next few weeks are going to be quite important, watching the new Irish government, watching the Portuguese government, both of which have large stakes in negotiating with the core countries, Germany and France and a few others in terms of coming to agreement. And something which geopolitically is, is, is really in our hands, which is we have a, a debt ceiling limit we're going to hit over the next two or three months. And the potential damage that could get done if the uh, Congress and President don't come to an agreement on this to extend the debt ceiling limit, is, as distasteful as it might seem to expand that, is, is enormous. We have a 10% of GDP budget deficit if we don't um, extend the debt ceiling limit, the government might have to reduce 
uh, its activities by that scale, 10% of GDP over the course of weeks. Uh, so this is a big, this is a big thing. I think the risks here of behavior turning into a, um, a situation where we can't come to agreement on this is relatively small, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't rule it out. Having taken those risks, which are in the political realm, I do want to emphasize one other risk, and that is um, the risk that we have that the adjustments that are made on policy, particularly monetary policy, end up happening in a fast and disruptive fashion. The Federal Reserve has really been our friend here for the last couple of years. We're, we're not only seeing interest rates at, at record lows, effectively zero. We're seeing the balance sheet of the Fed expand. And it's providing an enormously positive support for growth. Uh, in our mind, it certainly looks to us legitimate and not a big concern from the inflation scene, uh, in part because we have such weak labor markets, we have such weak housing markets. These are really key determinants of the U.S. inflation process. But as I said before, we live in a world where we're increasingly connected to the rest of the world, particularly those emerging market economies, and they're sitting here growing extremely rapidly. In fact, in early stages of overheating, and with their central banks still unwilling to decouple their policies from the U.S., particularly because they don't want currency appreciation, and certainly China is the, the big uh, dog on that. The risk, I think, is that global pricing shifts, uh, not just in commodity prices, and not primarily in commodity prices, but through the finished goods space, that actually both speeds up the shift in the U.S. inflation process and also synchronizes the need for adjustments between the Fed and its adjustment and other central banks. That prospect looks very unlikely in the next three to six months, but as we look out towards the end of this year and into 2012, the risks that that could happen, I think, are, are quite significant. And I personally feel that that's the single um, most important risk factor that we face if we can put down the idea that uh, Saudi Arabia stops producing oil over the next few months. So that's kind of how I see it. I think the world looks pretty good from a growth point of view, notwithstanding those uh, risks that we have to deal with. Then I mentioned up front the $10 trillion question. And the question is, what are we going to do um, as we're on a policy path right now that if we don't change, we will be adding $10 trillion to our public sector debt over the next 15 or 20 years, give or take a couple of trillion, one way or the other. That's a big, big issue. And it's an issue which is extremely complicated in an environment in which we're aging. And you know, most people think about the aging problem as increasing uh, government uh, entitlement spending, which is true. It's part of that acceleration in debt that we've got ahead. But I think a big part of the issue around aging is aging populations are populations which don't find it easy to make changes. And I think Japan is an important um, you know, guidepost in that. And I think the worry from my point of view here is that aging uh, populations just make it really difficult to do things um, that need to get done. The second part of this is we've got enormous imbalances in income that are going to be, I think, you know, a major theme politically of the coming years. Corporations are in great shape and households are in relatively weak shape. Uh, we have profit margins at record highs in the United States today, we have the unemployment rate at 9% and probably not going to move very, very quickly from that. That obviously cuts not only in a broad income sense, but it cuts across geographic, ethnic, 
um, and lots of other different um, components, and, and the pressures that puts on policy are enormous. The um, environment that that is going to create, I think, also manifests itself in a world in which the problems on public finance really do get very messy because the localities are such a big part of the story. This is not just a story of the federal government, it's a story about counties and cities across the United States whose obligations are not legislative, many times they're contractual, and because they're concentrated at the local level, we have a big brewing problem that as population ages and as the population tends to move north, south, and towards the coast, we find ourselves with enormous amount of localities um, in the northern and, and middle part of this country that just can't meet those obligations, both because the promises were too generous and because the tax spaces go. Now, I'm not certainly going to have time to go into uh, how we deal with these issues. I said up front that you should pretty much ignore what economists have to say about economic um, performance looking out over that big horizon. But what I do want to say is that this stuff is enormously important. There is nothing that's inevitable in the economic environment. The housing boom and bust we went through was not inevitable. It was very much driven by choices we made uh, as a society. Japan's problems slipping into deflation were not inevitable. It had to do with the, the Japanese policy decisions that were made. The issue around where we're going to be in the next 12 months, I think, is an issue that as a macroeconomist, we can forecast, we can assess the risks. In many respects, not, not entirely, but uh, in many respects, a lot of it is already baked in the oven, and we're just watching it come out. But the future about where we're going to be three, five, or seven years from now is going to be determined by what decisions we make. And in, if we take anything from the experience of the last year, where some countries were put under enormous stress in Europe, particularly Greece and Ireland, what we should understand is the option of waiting and, and allowing pressures to brew in a way that the market forces us into making those adjustments is not a very good one. The other thing I think we should understand, and we get a very clear message from history, it doesn't just matter how we deal with our fiscal issues, it doesn't matter what, excuse me, whether we deal with our fiscal issues, it matters how we deal with it. What are the choices we're going to make in terms of the footprint of the, of the public sector and the economy? What are the choices we're going to make in terms of where marginal tax rates are? What are the uh, investments we allocate for education, for infrastructure and the like? So, you know, I, I, I wanted to end perhaps on trying to give you an image. I think images and simple uh, messages are, are, are useful. Um, and I, when I try to think about the U.S. right now, I kind of think about living in Los Angeles. Uh, and I'm not a big fan of Los Angeles, by the way. Um, so, you know, the, the climate outside is, is mild. And I think from the point of view of what you're going to experience most likely over the next year or two, we'll feel in that sense mild. It's going to be one of job growth. It's going to be one of income growth. It's going to be one of asset prices uh, going up, maybe even housing prices stabilizing sometime over the next year. And we're going to feel that that healing process, while still slow, is taking, taking hold. But at the same time as we live that in our day to day, we're standing on tectonic plates. And 
we better build a good infrastructure to deal with it because those plates are going to shift at some point. It's very hard, and I wouldn't deem myself capable of predicting how and, and when they're going to shift, but um, we should understand that um, foundation that's lying under our feet and uh, really does, as I said earlier, become the crucial issue for understanding when we finally do come out of this, and we will uh, as a society, what's the U.S. economy uh, and the, the U.S. environment more generally going to look like uh, into the next decade and beyond. So uh, I just let me end by saying when I talk in these terms, or at least have talked in these terms, very similarly for the last year, year and a half, people have come up to me afterwards and say, boy, you're a great optimist. So um, I guess I'll end by saying that's the optimistic view of the U.S. <laughs> <laughs>